0: Well, good morning, church. It's a pleasure to be with you this morning. My name is Tim Bedall, and I have the great privilege of serving as lead pastor here. Our worship team did a great job this morning, amen? Well, I'm going to go ahead and ask you to take your Bibles out, whether it's in physical form or on your phone, and turn to the book of Hebrews as we continue in our series that we've entitled, uh, Jesus, the Greatest of All Time. And this book that is written is a book that it has an anonymous author. We don't know who it is, but we know who the audience is, and we know what they were going through. This was a group of first century Jewish Christians that were being pestered and being persecuted for their faith. They were being put down by family members and friends because of where they had put Jesus in their life, first and foremost in all that they said and did. And as a result of that, people... Who didn't like Jesus, who were against the cause of Christ, were doing everything in their power to knock them down. And so what was going on was these Hebrew Christians were wanting to give up and give in and go back to their old way of life and pursue the old traditions and the old rituals that they thought would get them close to God. And the author begins to give a reason why they shouldn't give up on Jesus. Using the Old Testament scriptures over and over again. He proves to them and shows them that Jesus is, in fact, greater than everything. And to give up on Jesus, who is greater than the angels, to give up on Jesus, the one whom God the Father exclusively saves through, to give up on Jesus, this Jesus who upholds creation in the palm of his hand, to give up on the greatest thing in all of the world is to be the most foolish thing that they could do. A reminder for every one of us this morning to give up on Jesus just to be popular, to give up on Jesus to pursue comforts in life, to give up on Jesus because the walk of Christ is too hard. Listen to me, my friends, is the most foolish thing that you could do on this earth. And so the writer begins to map out why we might do these things. Why might we wander? Away from the Lord. Well, the Bible is clear, and the book of Hebrews is clear as well on this truth, that all of us are prone to wander. Today we're going to examine the first of five warnings that come out of the book of Hebrews. A lot of people don't like the book of Hebrews because of the warnings that come in it. Warnings that call us to be careful. Warnings that say, beware. Warnings that tell us there is danger ahead. And the first reason or the first uh, warning that he gives is one that is about drifting. Now there are warnings in our lives that are way more flashy than don't drift away. This morning you no doubt drove and there were all manner of warning signs telling you uh, what uh, our government and, and what good sense keeps us from doing. That curve that you want to take at 65 miles an hour, IDOT says, you know what? You're not safe anything more than 45. And so follow our warning or run into despair. There's all manner of warnings that make lots of sense. I was down in our furnace room last night in my home, and I was looking at the hot water heater, and it said, beware of scalding heat. Don't turn your thermostat up on your water heater too hot. Just because you can turn it up doesn't mean you should. Why? Because somebody unwittingly may put their hands under some water thinking it's a certain temperature only to burn themselves. There's warnings that are helpful. But then there are warnings that make no sense. So it had been a while since I had made our bed, and I was uh, helping Amanda out with some of the household chores, and I was looking at our mattress, and there was a tag on the mattress. And I looked at the mattress, and you know how many warnings there are on a mattress? Now, the reason why warnings are there, listen, and this is really important because I don't want you to die via your mattress, but warnings no doubt are there because somebody did something... And it caused them pain, sorrow, and maybe even death. I I was reading the mattress tag. I I gotta imagine, maybe you can look at how many people have been injured or died from a mattress. That there's a tag that the mattress lawyers got together and said, we better warn these people or they might get themselves into a whole lot of trouble. There are warnings that make sense, there are warnings that don't. But I will tell you today, the warning we are given may be one of the most important Warnings for all of Christianity to hear. Especially in 21st century American Christianity. And that warning is to not drift away. Now it's not very flashy. The ones that are more flashy are the ones don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Warnings to not uh, fall into idolatry or rebellion. But to drift Drifting seems so blasé, seems so mediocre. And yet the writer of Hebrews begins chapter 2, in essence taking a time out and saying, in all that we've learned about chapter 1, about Jesus Christ being the greatest of all time, being greater than the angels, I want to stop and I want to warn you about something. And what he begins to say is, in light of all that I've told you about Jesus, can you still believe that some will drift away? When I say Jesus is the greatest of all time, you would think everybody would stop and make Jesus their greatest priority, make Jesus their greatest pursuit, make Jesus their greatest endeavor. But the writer says, but you know what people do? They look at Jesus and they walk away. They just drift away. Well, when I talk about the word drifting, that's not something we use very often. So let's define the terms as is. So let's look at drifting. What is drifting? Drifting is the slow and subtle process where passions and priorities change. Now, when the writer of Hebrews uses this term, he uses it in a nautical way. That is a way of boats or ships. And the idea here is a ship that is not properly anchored is going to drift away out of the harbor. And it's going to find itself in all manner of situations and issues because it's not safely docked in the harbor. And so this drifting is slow, it is subtle. It doesn't happen overnight, but one decision upon another, one moment upon another. uh, When you talk about drifting, very rarely do you remember where you actually started to drift, Because it's that subtle. It's that slow that you can't remember. And you didn't wake up saying, I no longer want to be a Christian. You don't wake up drifting away from all manner of things. But we do. We are, as the hymn writer says, prone to wander. Or for our matter today, we're prone to drift. We drift in our marriages. I've been married for over 20 years. And can I say with all of my heart that my passion and my priority for my marriage has been at a 10 All the time, no. And I'm thankful for a forgiving wife and a wife that admonishes me at times. I'm thankful for friends and family members who say, hey, you're drifting. Now, this isn't outward sin. This isn't me, uh, you know, fraternizing with with other ladies. This is subtle. This is slow. This is waking up and taking my wife for granted. This is me uh, not uh, dating my wife as I'm called to. We do it in parenting. I've got three kids, and I'm really focused in on the first one right now, right? We, we want to make sure we nail the first one just right, okay? And then the other ones come, and it's easy to get sloppy. It's easy to, to not hone in. Why? Well, you're older, right? Faculties aren't there when that third one rolls around, right? So, someone really laughed. Their faculties aren't really there. They're, they're on cruise control right now. But we drift, and we don't remember how stringent we were about things, and yeah, that's fine. Go ahead and do that. I, I don't have the time or the attention to it. Let me ask a real convicting thing. Tomorrow starts another work week and school week. Have you drifted in your work or in your school work? Oh, I, I don't have to put in the time and attention. The boss isn't watching. The teacher isn't around in, in virtual classrooms, so I can, I can drift. How about relationships? How about in your finances? Well, I'm going to save up money. I'm going to set aside money all the time. And, but you know what? This car came up or this new house came up or this new technology came up. And so little by little, we drift away. And before we know it, we look back and, and we don't, can't even imagine how far we have drifted away. But as important as those things are, the writer of Hebrews doesn't say don't drift away from your marriage, don't drift away in your parenting, don't drift away in your work or in your school. As important as those are, he nails the most important thing He says don't drift away from your relationship with Jesus Christ. And could it be said of you today that your walk with Jesus Christ isn't being lived out with the same passion and priority that it should? The excitement for the things of God that were once there, His word, prayer, the gathering with other believers, the desire to share what God has taught you with other people through the gifts of service, the giving unto the Lord of your time and talent and, yes, your treasure. It isn't what it used to be. Oh, you're not out in outward rebellion, outright rebellion, but you don't have that same fire. The Apostle John said, you have forgotten your first love. And that's what the writer is going to be talking about today. He gives this warning. And where there's a warning, there is a, an ability for us to fall into what he's saying. Now, it's real easy in a passage like this, as I'm about to read, to look down the aisle and say, boy, I'm glad they're here at church today. Because I've seen drifting. It just Here's an important truth. You will always see others drift before you see yourself drift. It's way easier to see your spouse drifting than you to drift. It's easy, listen to this, parents, to see your kids drifting and you not. It's easy for a pastor to look at a congregation and say they're drifting and not look at the plank in the pastor's eye. We're all prone to drifting. And this is what the author says. Therefore, in light of all that we've heard, all that we've seen about Christ, We must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect? Underline that word if you underline in your Bible. Neglect is the beginning stages of drifting. If we neglect such a great salvation. This great salvation was declared at first by the Lord It was attested to us by those who heard it, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles, and by the gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Now, it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere that what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? For you made him a little lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, who is crowned with glory, honor, because of suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. The author wants us to know and understand how we can find our way out of drifting in life when it comes to Christ. How do we do it? We've got to answer three questions this morning. I'll move through them as quickly as possible. Number one, what are the warning signs to drifting? How do I know if I'm doing it? If it's slow and subtle, how do I know if I'm falling prey to it? Well, there are two things that I have. Maybe you can come up with other ones. But there are two that I see. Number one presumption. Presumption, that is the thought or the thinking that someone else is going to do the work for me. That is the thinking that I am not wholly responsible for my walk with God. Someone else is. Maybe this morning you're sitting next to your spouse and it's not uncommon for spouses to have a a difference in their depth or breadth of their relationship with Christ. We are called as believers to be equally yoked with our spouses. That is that Christ is first and foremost in our marriage. But any two people, there's going to be variances. But what the Bible is saying is is be careful that you don't presume that your wife or your husband whose walk is stronger than yours is going to be allowed for you to ride their coattails. Well, My wife, she's really into the word. She's doing the work for us. My wife will let me know on the way to small group what I need to discuss because she did the study, but I didn't, so I'll have some answers and not look completely ignorant. My husband, you know, uh, he's in the men's Bible study and he's making sure our marriage is where it needs to be. And so I can stay home and I can watch Netflix and I'll let him be the husband he needs to be and and we'll be fine. We'll we'll be where we need to be. Presumption says that someone else is gonna do the hard work I don't need to. Kids, kids, you got godly mother and father, the greatest, listen to me, the greatest blessing any kid could ever have. And what do you do? Well, they've got the faith thing down. I'll just ride them. They love the Lord. They're serving the Lord. You know what? I'm in good stead. Because God's not going to separate moms and dads from their kids in glory. That won't happen. So when I get to glory, I stand before the throne room of Jesus Christ. Listen, why should I allow you into heaven? Well, you know my mom and dad. and they served you well. At 14 years of age, I had to realize that my parents' faith wasn't good enough to save me. It was great. It was a blessing, but it did not have saving power. And so I had to come to grips as a teenager to recognize that if this thing was going to be for me, then I had to own it and I couldn't rely on some godly parents. Presumption. Are you presuming that someone else is going to do it? Now, that's the positive side where you're just like, you know what? I'm just going to lean into mom and dad. I'm going to lean into my spouse. There's a negative side, and that is where we come in and we're cynical. And I can't tell you how many times I've heard this presumption. I'm not where I need to be, and I know who to blame. If our small group would dig in deeper, then my relationship with Christ would be stronger. If, if Pastor Tim's messages weren't so long and boring, then I would have a vibrant walk with Jesus Christ. If the worship team sang the kind of songs that I would sing, then I could get into worship, and then I might have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so many, listen, there are so many people who will find themselves blaming others for the sin of presumption on their part. Now, does that mean pastors can't equip? No. Does that mean pastors' messages should be boring and, sh- and, and long? No. All of that is, there's some level of truth to it, but that is, not as, that is not what keeps us from our relationship with Christ being vibrant and strong. It falls wholly on your shoulders. Don't presume it's someone else that's going to do it for you. Number two, preoccupation. Beware of the sin of drift if you're preoccupied, and that is that something else is more desired than Christ. Now this is the the, the difficulty that the Hebrews are struggling with in their drifting. Their standing in the community, their comfort with their family and friends, with their employers and fellow employees, is not at a good place because Jesus is messing everything up for them. If they stick in the Old Testament, everybody likes them and life goes well. It's the second that they start talking about the resurrecting king that was resurrecting them in the first century that the world would say, time out, you're not with us anymore. Time out, I'm going to bring pain and sorrow into your life because you're not going with the flow. Well, can we say that today? How many of our relationships are messed up? at work or at school, in our neighborhoods, some even in our homes, because Jesus gets in the way. And how often would we like to just get rid of Jesus because it would make life a whole lot easier? In the 21st century, preoccupation is probably, listen to me, the greatest sin affecting the evangelical church. Because we're smart enough, we're we're biblically founded enough that we know that we got to have Jesus, but we become preoccupied with everything in the world. Now listen, I don't want to be legalistic, but it seems odd that all manner of activities and hobbies keep us from all manner of things. As a pastor, I'll say, hey, um, I haven't seen you for a while. Yeah, we've been busy. Are you going to join a small group this year? Yeah, you know what? No, we've got a lot of things going on. We've got the kids going here, the kids going there. Hey, we'd love to have you serve in this way. Yeah, I'd love to, but I just don't have the time. Again, I don't want to be legalistic in this, and it could easily be seen as a legalistic blow, but what is it? We are a distracted, we're a distracted people. And here's the crazy thing. I can assure you that most of those people are not in open rebellion and sin right now. They're out, they're watching their kids play sports, they're, they're, they're pouring into their hobby because it's a beautiful fall day and let's get the kids and let's go for a bike ride, let's, let's do all manner of things. There are all kinds of things that can distract us. In our small group, we were talking about the importance, which the writer will talk about later in the text, about gathering with God's people, both in the home and in the church. And, and this is what the individual said, and I really appreciated the transparency. He said, there's a lot of ways that I could enjoy my Sundays and my Tuesday nights than going to church or small group. That's what's tempting about this. There's good things. It's, great, it's a beautiful day today and in Chicago we don't get many of those. There's a lot of things that we could be doing, but this is how he finishes it. But if I don't discipline myself and add these things to my schedule and keep them, I will drift away. I'll drift away. And he says I need you guys because my heart is a drifting heart. And once we recognize that, then we're on the first step towards the road of recovering now the question is: how, Why is this so serious? That's question number two. Why is it so serious? I mean, we're not out in open sin and open rebellion. How bad is it that my spiritual walk on cruise control? How bad that, can that be? Is that really hurting anyone? So I'm not in the Word like I should be, Pastor. I'm not praying as much. I'm not serving as much. I'm not giving as much. I'm not. I'm not as in love with Jesus as I once was. Does that really matter? I was in love with Him at a point. I said yes, didn't I? Verse 3 says, you're not asking the right question. Notice in verse 3, he says, How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? That should be jarring to us. The writer is saying, listen, in light of all that Christ has done, and all that Christ is doing in your life, the blessings that he pours upon you and me, whether in our salvation or in our sanctification, giving us all we need for life and godliness, God keeps giving, Christ keeps serving, Christ keeps giving us all that we need, and in light of it, we're just going to be casual about our faith? Surely God isn't casual about upholding the universe in his hands. Surely Christ wasn't casual in laying his life down for us. Surely the Holy Spirit isn't casual or flippant when it comes to him sealing us with him, the Holy Spirit. So why then, as recipients of his grace and his mercy and love, would we be so flippant that we would allow ourselves to drift away? That is what the author is saying. How then can we escape so great a salvation? How can we neglect such a thing? D.A. Carson put it this way. He says, people do not drift towards holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate towards godliness, prayer, obedience to scripture, faith and delight in the Lord. No, we drift towards compromising. We call it tolerance. We drift towards disobedience and call it freedom. We drift towards superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline. Of lost self control, and we call it relaxation. We slouch towards prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we've escaped legalism. We slide toward godlessness and convince ourselves we have been liberated. So, all of this drifting, as subtle and as slow as it is, listen to me. Why is it so serious? Listen very, very carefully. It offends God. It offends God. God isn't sitting there going, oh, look at my child. It's not taking this seriously. Oh, how wonderful it is. Kids will be kids. No, he sits there and he says, after all I've done? Parents, think about it. Think about after raising your kids, 18 years of raising your kids. And in year 18, after you've poured and you've invested and you've spent money and time and effort, you've done all of this, And your kid, just little by little, decision upon decision, says, yeah, thanks, but no thanks. You don't think that would offend you? You don't think that would bring great grief to your heart? Later in the book, the the writer of Hebrews will say this. When we drift, we trample the Son of God underfoot. We take all the blessings that God has, we throw it on the ground, and we step on it. As if it's nothing. Now, why is that? You say, wait a minute, just because I don't pray, just because I'm not in the word, just because I'm not as fired up as I should be about the faith, why? Let me give you three things from the text. Number one, uh, by drifting, you dismiss God's message. Verses two through four. For since the message declared by angels, that's the 10 commandments, that's the law that the the angels brought to Moses from God Proved to be reliable, and every transgression of disobedience received a just retribution. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was uh, declared at first by our Lord, Jesus Christ. It was attested to us by those who heard, that is the disciples and those that were around Jesus. Well, God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles. So it wasn't just by word. He proved the veracity of it. Through many signs and wonders done by the disciples and by Jesus, as well as the gifts that are distributed according to his will. So, here is what the writer says You can trust the message of the gospel. You can trust it, first of all, because of who it comes through it comes through angels, they're reliable, it comes through Jesus, he's reliable. And it can come from the reliable witnesses of those who laid their life on the line. The apostles who saw and heard what Jesus said. The apostle John says, we've uh, heard it. We've seen it with our eyes. We've felt it with our hand. This Jesus, everything he, that we know about him is true. Now believe in our message. And they went to their graves, some early graves, because of that message. And they said, you can trust this. The writer of Hebrews does what Portillo's does. You didn't see that coming, right? Curveball. Some of you are thinking about uh, Italian beef right now. So how many have been to Portillo's? Inside of Portillo's, raise your hand, okay? We'll take orders in a moment. In Portillo's, Dick Portillo, the owner and restaurateur of, of uh, that fine establishment, has a great marketing ploy. And the marketing ploy is he gets all of these famous people who have eaten his food to take a picture and to write a message about how much they enjoyed the food. So when you walk into Portillo's, you see all of these actors, all of these people, and they're like, man, it was a great lunch. It was a great hot dog. It was a great burger. It was great fries. It was a great shake. Why? So that we can have confidence that when we order our 45,000 calories worth of food, That we're going to be satisfied. The writer of Hebrews is saying, when you walk into your walk of faith, there is this, now I'm going to connect it for you, this great cloud of witnesses who are sitting there saying, don't give up. It's worth it. It's worth the pain, the sorrow. It's worth the dedication and the diligence that is needed for this relationship with Christ. This gospel that we are not to treat flippantly why listen very carefully folks god has spoken and god is speaking to us and will it go through one ear and out the other one of the greatest frustrations for me as a adult is when someone will say hey tim can i get some advice and they hear the advice and they go and do the exact opposite you know what I say to them? Don't ever come again. I, why am I wasting my time? Imagine what God must be saying. He sent His one and only Son. And as followers of Christ, we're not talking about unbelievers here. As followers of Christ, yeah, 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 I got it. I know the old, old story. Yeah, 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 yeah. But, but, but the golf course is calling. We dismiss it. Number two, we disregard God's judgments. There's this verse, verse uh, 2. For since the message declared by the angels, he's looking back and he's saying, listen, you Jewish believers, before you came to know Christ, you lived by the law. You positioned yourself in full accordance with, to the law. You didn't miss a beat. You always made sure there wasn't a line, there wasn't an iota, there wasn't a jot or a tittle that was missed in the law. You nailed it. And that message came from the angels. Now the message comes from Jesus Christ, God's one and only Son. And you know what happened with the message that was brought by the angels and when the Israelites didn't obey it. Story upon story. Of God's judgment and wrath being poured out. My family is from the Assyrian ethnicity. And we're in the Bible. And you know what? The only time we're in the Bible is when God deals with Israel. My her- heritage is popular on the sole reason that the Jewish people, they drifted a lot. And God would say, they're the Assyrians. I'll bring the wicked Assyrians, they'll address them. They'll deal with them. In Deuteronomy 28, just write this down. Deuteronomy 28, a third of the chapter is written about the blessings of what it is to follow God's commands. Two-thirds of almost 70 verses are given to the curses that come with drifting and disobedience. But Tim, God doesn't punish. Tim, God doesn't do those things. Now, that's the Old Testament God. That's why I like the New Testament God. Let us be reminded that in the book of 1 and 2 Corinthians, Paul says some of you are sick and others are dead because you made a mockery of the work of God. We don't like to hear that as Christians. Our doctrine gets in the way of that. Where does God's doctrine of his word say that Christians aren't disciplined for sin? In fact, the writer will say later in Hebrews 13, uh, uh, shore up your feeble knees under the rod of discipline. And some of you maybe right now are in turmoil. Some of you maybe right now, and I'm, 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 I'm painting with a broad brush, but might your trials, might your tribulation, might your issues be because you have drifted away. And God, in his love and his mercy, is trying to get your attention to say you've walked away from your first love. Number three, drifting discounts the work of Christ. Verses five through nine. Now it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you, are, you care for him. You made him a little lower, uh, for a little while lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection to his feet. By the way, that's Psalm 8, for those that don't know. So he's quoting a very famous uh, psalm. Now it goes on. And it says now in putting everything in subjection to him he let nothing out of his control. At present we do not see everything in subjection to him but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels namely Jesus who is crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. So there's this weird interlude that takes place. The interlude is, is that Where's man in realm with the angels? Remember last week, Jesus is greater than the angels. But wait a minute, Jesus took on flesh. And so the writer says, well, Jesus is greater than the angels, though he took on flesh. So the question is, what about us? And so the writer does this little history lesson. He says, yeah, we were the apex of creation. All things were subject to us, even though we were made little lower than the angels. It was our relationship with God that changed that. But something happened. And that is in the fall, the earth that was created for us to be a place of dominion for us that was working with us is now going to work against us. Our work was no longer subject to us, meaning uh, creation. It's going to fight against us. And we had ceded that control to the devil because of sin. And so Jesus comes, and Jesus wholeheartedly elevates humanity back to its rightful place by putting flesh on and making his dwelling among us. Because he did what the first Adam didn't do, and that is follow the commands of God perfectly. And so the last Adam, Jesus, fulfilled what the first Adam, Adam, couldn't do. And chose not to do. And so what we see is, to enable to do that, to bring humanity back to where we needed to be. It was going to cost Jesus something. Notice, he tasted death. Wait a minute, God doesn't die. The God of the universe, who always has been and always will be, who's the Alpha and Omega, the beginning, the end, the omnipotent, omniscient, ever-present God, does not die, and that's what happened when Jesus went to the cross. The Son of God laid down his life for us. Now let me ask you, What thing in this world, what pursuit, what endeavor, what relationship is more important than that? Nothing is right, amen. But sadly, we forget that, right? And so the author says to us be careful, be careful lost in space. Danger, Will Robinson. Anybody that's 40 or younger, you have no earthly idea what I'm talking about. Danger ahead. Don't drift away. Don't dismiss the message of God. Don't disregard God's judgments. Don't discount the work of Christ. Well, how do we do that? How do we make sure that we don't do that again? Notice, how do we find success? Let me close with this. We don't drift easy solution don't drift well that's not the answer you're looking for I love that the writer says this because this is really this and this is a message oh man this is a message that the legalist and all of us loves to point the finger and say boy you need to hear this and the problem is when you're pointing this way you need to be pointing this way notice what he says therefore you hebrews Pay much closer attention, right? That's what my Bible says. Therefore, all you drifters, you must pay closer attention, right? Therefore, Village Bible Church, not the staff, just the parishioners. (laughs) Pay much closer. That's what my Amplified Bible says. Therefore, everyone who's not standing behind a pulpit right now. No, I love the writer. He says, therefore, we. And he puts himself in there. It's easy to preach about drifting. It's hard for your pastor to live it. I'm brokenhearted over the amount of times, the wasteless, needless things I have pursued instead of that which Christ has wanted. And so this text beats me up because I should know better. But like the hymn writer says, Tim is prone to wander. Boy, do I feel that. Boy, am I prone to leave the God I love. So, what do I got to do? What's the answer? The answer is in verse one. Pay much closer attention. The idea here is focusing whatever lens you're using to make sure that you've got it clear. Another way is that you clear whatever is in your way. The idea of a horse putting on uh, blinders so that they don't see anything because all the stuff on their peripheral is not important. What is is ahead of them. It's what the writer says now, we fix our eyes on Jesus. It's attention, it's focus. Notice this or transfixing of our gaze upon Christ and all that he's done is a must. Underline that word. Therefore, we must. It's not a suggestion, Christian. It's not pleasant platitudes. It's not a proverb. This is a must. We must fix our eyes on Jesus because when we don't, we will, listen to me, we will drift away. Not maybe, not might, we will drift away. An author put this, I didn't write it down who it came from so you can uh, Google it and find out. It says this, heaven never tires of the cross and neither should we. The saints in glory never grow weary of singing the old, old story. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive glory, honor, power, wealth, and wisdom, might, honor, and blessing, and neither should we but we do. So what do we do? Deliverance from drifting, write this down, this is the takeaway for today. Deliverance from drifting is found in my daily dependence on, let's stop there for a moment, you can't do this on your own. You cannot roll up your sleeves and say I'm not going to drift away. You cannot do it in your own strength. So the hymn that we're gonna sing later, it says, Lord, take my heart, take and seal it, seal it for thy courts above. We need the Holy Spirit in this. And so deliverance from drifting is praying and saying, God, I can't do this on my own. God, take away these distractions. God, fill me with such a love and a passion for your things. I'll depend on you and not my own strength. It's daily dependence. Each and every day, we've gotta do this. And it's devotion to the gospel, not devotion to work, not devotion to relationships, not devotion to your money, not devotion to your hobby, not devotion to your things, but a daily dependence and devotion on the gospel, the message that Jesus Christ is the greatest of all time. And because he's the greatest of all time, I'm going to make him the greatest endeavor, the greatest pursuit, the greatest priority in everything that I do. Are you drifting today? Anchor yourself firmly in the grace that saved you. And dig into all that God has for you. And relish in the fact that God has invited you into a relationship with him because of his son. And recognize that relationship came at a cost. You say, well, it's free to me. Well, yeah, you can't do anything and you can't earn it. But the Bible says that the walk of Jesus Christ, if anyone, Jesus says, come after me, he must deny himself daily and take up his cross. Jesus wasn't, listen very carefully and I'll close, Jesus wasn't the only one who sacrifices in the Christian life. Jesus' sacrifice is the only one that saves. But Jesus calls every one of us into a daily sacrifice. Because if we don't, we'll drift away. And here's why God doesn't want us to, dr- be, to, to drift away. Because he loves you and because he knows that when we are with him and not drifting out into sea, that we will experience the greatest peace, contentment, joy, fulfillment, and abundance. And So Jesus invites you, have a closer walk with me. Amen? A great warning for us. Let's close this time with prayer. Father God, we pray for our drifting. We confess it to you. In this moment, Lord, in this sacred, quiet moment, let your Holy Spirit fall upon us. And if there's something that is causing us, even in the slightest way, to drift from you, Lord, I pray you would scream it into our hearts right now. And that we would recognize in that moment, in this place, in this time, that it offends you. It makes a laughing stock of the great sacrifice that you've made. It tramples on the blood that was shed. It dismisses the work of the church before us and the Christians who showed us the way. And it keeps us from a right relationship with you. So Lord, I pray that in this quiet moment, we might rededicate ourselves to the truth that you are the greatest. And if there's someone, Lord, that's never trusted you, maybe they've, their life is one big drift. And now they've heard about you, that today would be the day that they would ask for your forgiveness and they would seek you as Lord and Savior. Lord, for those that have never done that, they would find me or someone next to them that might share them the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that you came to save sinners like us so that we might have life. We love you, and we thank you for the success that you give us from drifting. We thank you for this word, and it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.